Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. If you haven't noticed, we are living in a generation where, where words have become harder and harder to, to sort of figure out. Today's younger generation, known generally as Gen Z, so so you got uh, you got boomers, which uh, you know that's what the younger generation calls anybody that's older than them. They boomer, okay. So you got boomers. You got the best generation, which is Gen X, right? Okay, Gen Xers unite. Okay, then you got millennials, and millennials have taken a lot of heat. Uh, but millennials are like they're not kids anymore. They're working. They're they're gainfully employed. Well, they're employed, um, and so I'm sorry. I, that that I, that shouldn't have said that. Um, I probably should have. Um, but then after millennials, you've got you've got Gen Z, and they want to be so much like Gen X that they just got something that sounded like Gen, Gen X. Um, they have a they've got a, a penchant for the creative use of of words. Reader's Digest, which probably isn't a great authority on Gen Z words, <laughs> they published a list of 30 of the most common words in the Gen Z vocabulary. So take notes, there will be a quiz, but I want to educate you on some of those words today. The word bet, like B-E-T. Now, for boomers and Gen Xers and that sort of thing, a bet is something you do at the, at the horse track. It's, you know, it's what they're advertising on Saturday during football games. A, a bet is when you place some money down on the, you know, you're playing the odds. If you're a Gen Z, though, a, a bet is a, is a term for agreement or approval. Are, are we still on for Saturday night? Bet. Okay, so there you go. So you can, you can abbreviate using the word bet. Here's another one, cap. Okay, cap used to be something that you wore on your head. Baseball players wear caps while they're, while they're playing baseball. Um, however, now cap means something that's considered false or, an, or just an outright lie. It's most commonly used in the phrase, where's my Gen, Gen Zers? What? No cap, right? No cap, which means no lie. Example, that was the best pizza I've ever had. No cap, Okay. Next word, drip. This is what a faucet does, okay? It drips, but the real meaning is it's a cool sense of style. So if you're wearing a corduroy jacket or something, right? It refers to clothes or the way somebody carries themselves. You know, your pastor's drip is iconic. (laughs) Here's another one, glow up. Now, this sounds like you broke one of those glue sticks or those glow sticks and you're glowing now. That's not what this means. Glow up means to go through a positive physical, mental, or spiritual change. He had a major glow up over the summer. So if we're Christians and we're trying to evangelize Gen Z, we might say, you need to, you need to glow up in Christ. Okay, that may be a, a way to translate get saved. I, I don't know. Um, here's another one. Hits different. Hits different. Hits different means... It's used to describe something that makes you stand out from the rest or make you feel different compared to other things. My mom's cooking just hits different, okay? Um, Here's another phrase which I find incredibly interesting because you should never be able to use this phrase. I'm dead. 
that is, a, that is an impossible statement because you can't say that, right? I'm dead. Well, if you're dead, you can't say that. However, I'm dead means an expression to use when you find something hilarious. Did you hear her crack that joke? I am dead. Which the new thing is, is when you send emojis, you date yourself if you send laughing emojis. Okay? You're supposed to send skulls now to show that something's really funny. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I told you. Here's another one. My son's used this one before. Sus. Sus sounds like some sort of medical problem. Like, I've got a bad sus, doc. I need you to treat it. Sus is short for suspicious. It typically means that something is not as it may seem. Man, that story's just sus. Okay, it's, it's suspect. It's suspicious. <laughs> and this is one. This is great. The word yeet. Some of y'all are laughing. You know. Yeet. Yeet technically has two meanings. One is a word that's essentially an exclamation of approval or excitement. The other is just used to describe a powerful throw. He yeeted the football 30 yards. Did you see that throw? Yeet. There's another word I debated on. It's still, it's still up for grabs. The word chuggy, uh, which, uh, which chuggy is basically me. Uh, to, to Gen Z, and, and uh, I'm just, I'm chuggy, uh, which, uh, which that's up for debate, but uh, we'll, leave that, we'll leave that out. Here's some bonus points. If you can use any of those words in a conversation today, you do get bonus points for, uh, for the day, so just, just keep that in mind. Of course, every generation has its slang, but even Gen Z slang words do have meaning. I mean, those are very professional-sounding definitions. We've come to recognize, though, that some very simple words are becoming a little bit harder to nail down. It's become common when you are on social media to see your name described this way. Your name followed by parentheses, he, him, or she, her, uh, as a way of communicating to other people how you would like to be referred to in terms of your personal pronoun. For some, it's becoming popular to list your preferred pronoun as they, them. And this gets confusing, right? Because he, him refers to me, one. They, them refers to y'all. And so that's plural. That's, that's multiple people. Um, if you learn English like I did, it's been a day or two, they, them refers to that, that group of people, not a singular person. But if you take some time to read a liberal piece of journalism, look how hard it is to understand what's going on when they refer to an individual as they, them. Even more complicated than co-opting plural words to refer to individuals, a whole new class of words is beginning to develop called neo-pronouns. Like, you got to go back to school now. Uh, there was no such thing as a neo-pronoun when I was in school. Honestly, if I can just say this without hurting your feelings, they're just made-up words. But give it time, and neo-pronouns are coming to a school near you. Um, and you will hear it when a young man asks you to refer to him, not as he, him, but as tater. If you say it fast, that says tater. What's your name, Tater? Of course, cultural change often comes with a change in vocabulary and a change in how the vocabulary is put to work. And in this brave new world in which we find ourselves, language is being reshaped right before 
our very eyes. There's some words, though, that have been around a long time. But the meaning that they have today, let's just say the meaning is just as ambiguous as the pronoun te. Let me offer you one such word, Christian. What does that word mean today? What do, we, do we know what the word Christian even means? I know I'm a Christian, but my definition of Christian definitely doesn't match the definition that our culture has today. In fact, if you left here right now and went and knocked on the door of people who are at home right now during the church hour, as it's been in the South for so long, and you ask people about their faith, you would find that in our community, in this hour, an overwhelming majority of the people who came to the door would say that they are Christian. How can that Christian be the same as how I define Christian? How can someone who's never darkened the door of a Christian church in years actually refer to themselves as, as Christian? Again, going to church doesn't make you a Christian, but there's something about being in church that is compelling to Christians. People who are in Christ want to be in Christian community. It's natural. One commentator said this, said, we are living in a time when the term Christian has become one of the vaguest epithets in the English language. What does it even mean to be a Christian? This morning, I want us to turn our attention to Acts chapter 11. As we meet the first Christians in the Bible, Acts chapter 11, I invite you to stand with me as I read this from Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and, and Cyrene, who, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Father, thank you for the Christians that we meet in Antioch. Lord, I pray that we would refine our understanding of what it means to be Christian in accordance with what the Scriptures teach, not in what our world conveys. May we be faithful followers of Jesus. May we wear the title Christian well. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, the, the story of the church is getting more and more complex. 
It's more characters are being introduced. The, the, the spread is happening. The gospel's broken loose from Jerusalem. It's now in Antioch, which is, which is hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. And all this is a consequence of Stephen's persecution back in Acts chapter 8. Now these disciples have spread. The gospel has moved far beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and Judea. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at Peter's, shall I say, his glow up. As his heart was softened towards the Gentiles. I'm trying to be relevant. Foster talked about relevancy a few weeks ago, so I don't want to be relevant, right? But now we're learning something remarkable is happening. Churches are springing up. Because what happens when the gospel goes to a community, people get saved. People who are saved gravitate towards what? The church. Okay? Churches spring up. People want to be in community with one another. This is what happens as a consequence of the gospel being preached and people being saved. And now there are churches in these Gentile communities. And Antioch was one of these cities where the church gained a very strong foothold. But let's understand something. Antioch was not some ancient version of Mayberry where Andy got saved and then everybody else got saved. That's not what Antioch is like. Antioch was the third largest city in the world behind Rome and Alexandria. So this is a major center of population. And cities then have the same thing in common with cities now. The the thing about cities is when you squish a whole bunch of centers together in a tight area, guess what happens? Sin multiplies, right? Sin, sin spreads, okay? And Antioch was no different. It was a melting pot of all kinds of different cultures. It was known for its chariot racing, and you, uh, just like modern sporting events, bring about all kinds of wickedness and debauchery. Chariot racing, you know, brought about all kinds of, of terrible, sinful things. It was a town that was filled with debauchery and sinful pursuits. One historian described Antioch as Las Vegas on the Orontes River not to offend people who are from Las Vegas. This large city filled with darkness was exactly the place where the gospel fire burned brightly. And Antioch was, would become known as the birthplace of, of foreign missions. It became the home base of some of the church's greatest early preachers. So if you ever look around and you think, man, our nation's too far gone, just remember that history is filled with examples of God's light shining in very dark pits. History is filled with examples of terrible, sinful places where God's light shines very brightly, where the gospel is proclaimed in the middle of that darkness. And Luke here tells us that Antioch, this awful city filled with sin and debauchery, was the first place where Jesus' followers were known as Christians. The term Christian only shows up a couple times in the New Testament, and this is where Jesus' followers, disciples, saints, as they were, as they called themselves, brothers and sisters, they're known as, as Christians. You see, the folks in Antioch were looking for a new term to describe all these religious zealots, because I mean, that's what they were. New people rolling the town, and they're preaching the gospel. People are converting. There is something happening here. What, what's happening over there in that building, in that, in that home, where people are flocking? What's going on there? Oh, that's some Christians. Well, who's that? Well, they, they follow Christ or something, some, some Jewish prophet they follow. And so they took the Greek word for Messiah, which was Christos, they added a Latin suffix to it, and so it's just a, it's, it's a mutt of a word, the word Christian. But that's where it was made from, Messiah, and then that Latin suffix. So Christian essentially means this, people of Christ's party. 
I like that definition. Particularly in today's hyper-partisan, I mean, blue versus red vocabulary. Are you a Republican? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Are you a Democrat? Uh Uh-uh. Are you a Libertarian? Uh Uh-uh. What are you? I'm a Christian. Who's in charge of your party? Jesus. Jesus. I'm going to tell you, the church would be better off if we would make sure Jesus is the one in charge and not somebody else. I'm a Christian. And of course, this new name in Acts chapter 11, it was generally to be believed to be pejorative. Oh, you're a, you're a Christian? Uh, you're one of those? It wasn't as a, a word that was celebrated. And as a result of being identified as Christians, what begins to happen? They begin to lose some protection. Because if they were Jews, they had protection built in. The Roman government recognized the Jewish religion as, a, as an authentic, legitimate religion. But as they were beginning to change that definition away from Jewish into Christian, they began to lose that protection. They began to be seen as not as an established religion with protection, but as a cult. Eventually, emperors would turn their rage towards the Christians. And over the course of time, great persecutions would break out, fueled by Roman emperors as Christians were put to death for their faith. And so this morning, as we consider these Christians at Antioch, I want us to understand something today. What characterized these folks in Antioch that warranted the title of Christian? The first thing we have to understand is this. We see this there in verse 20. Jesus was on their lips. It wasn't a mission project that they were there. It's not like they got together and they said, all right, team, we're going to plan a mission trip. Where do we want to go this year? Well, we want to go to Antioch. We want to take a mission trip to Antioch. Well, let's get our whole team together. Let's raise funds. Let's learn what we're going to do. Let's go to Antioch and paint churches and dig ditches and dig wells for the glory of God. And and maybe somebody there will hear about Jesus. This is not what this is. There is persecution. They are being spread. And as they go, they are talking about Jesus. Wherever they went, Jesus was the theme of their song. When they got to Antioch, they're not like, oh, we're here for our mission trip. They went, they talked about Jesus, and there was no doubt where they stood. It's almost like the folks who still have election signs in their yard from last year. If you still got an election sign in your yard from last year, we know where you stand. Either you're you're lazy and forgot to take it down, or you're serious. Like, you're serious. Win or lose, you're serious. We know where you stand. These people who went to Antioch as they were proclaiming the gospel, there was no question where they stood. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. The Great Commission clearly tells us that we need to go and make disciples, but the sense behind the action verb there is not go as in a trip, but as you go. So if you take a trip, make sure you are going and you are making disciples. I want you to ask yourself a hard question right now. Understanding that Jesus is on their lips. They are preaching Jesus to Greeks and Jews alike. Jesus is clearly who they are aligned with. Do you talk more about a president or a politician than you talk about Jesus? 
I think that's a relevant question to ask today. Because whose party are we part of? The Jesus party, right? I, I mean, I'm part of the Jesus party. I'm not blue, red, purple, or any shade otherwise. I'm part of the Jesus party. And so Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. I need to be more concerned about Jesus than I am about any other human being on the planet. Because I'm part of the Jesus party. I'm a Christian. The second thing we need to understand is that Jesus was on their lips, but discipleship was pursued. Look at verses 25 and 26. We see that Barnabas, apparently Barnabas got overwhelmed. There's too many people. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Who better to bring into this environment than somebody who knows a thing or two about how to, you know, how to minister to, to, to Gentiles? So he went and got Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Probably some of those midnight teachings were taking place there in Antioch. They spent a year pouring into and investing in this church. He had to recruit help because there's a bunch of baby believers that needed to learn and there was much to learn. Now, we can sort of see how Luke is developing the story, right? Saul's been, out, Saul's been off, off scene for a while. You know, he's been learning, he's been growing, he's been, he's been understanding more about what it means to walk with Christ. He's been, he's been off the picture, but now we begin to bring him back in. So we know what Luke is doing here, but he says they spent a whole year meeting and teaching. Serious training was going on at the church in Antioch. It's amazing to me today how many Christians avoid discipleship opportunities. They set aside an hour in their week for church, but don't talk about Sunday school or small group or a Wednesday night Bible study. They may bring their children to church functions. They may send their teenagers to youth group. It's amazing to me that, that if discipleship is something that is so important to us as it's conveyed to us in the Scripture, how often we avoid it. Think for just a moment, cumulatively speaking, over the course of the, of the week, how many hours do we spend consuming news, entertainment, social media, and those sort of things? Just ponder that for a moment. How many hours do we spend consuming that sort of content? You know what? Sunday school is just too much. Wednesday nights are just too busy. Now hang tight. If what I'm saying makes you uncomfortable, be thankful. Why? Because I mean the Lord's working in your heart right now. It means he's trying to get your attention here. Discipleship matters. For those who are in Christ, growing in Christ is significant. The third thing we see about these first Christians is that they saw themselves as part of a bigger picture. We find out in the last part of our verse here, verses 27 through 30, we find out that, that some prophets came and, and told about a situation that was developing. A famine was coming. And it'd be easy to say, oh man, that's down in Jerusalem. It's not going to affect us. Thank goodness we're going to be able to, to function here. You know, we'll be fine. 
But what happens to the church at Antioch? They realize that they're not an island to themselves. They clearly were the epicenter of some remarkable things that were about to transpire in the kingdom, but they realize that the church in Jerusalem was going to be filled with brothers and sisters in need. And what's so fascinating about that is that the church in Jerusalem was filled with people who weren't nearly as excited about the Gentiles at the church at Antioch as the church at Antioch was. The church in Jerusalem wasn't fired up about all the Greeks getting saved. That was, a, that was a point of contention for a long time in the church. But the church in Antioch said, we want to help. It says as, as they were able. So they sacrificially helped as much as they could. You know, in our church over the next couple of months, we're going to be reaching beyond ourselves as part of the larger kingdom of God. You know, COVID has isolated us in so many ways. We've been our little body, our little class, our little group. And so I'm so excited that over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking for ways to reach beyond ourselves as part of the kingdom of God. Of course, Operation Christmas Child is up first. Shoeboxes may not seem like much to you, but I've seen what happens when a, when a child is given that shoebox. I've seen what happens when a local church in a foreign country is given a, a supply of these shoeboxes to use as evangelistic tools that open up gospel conversations with children. So you may think that your shoebox full of dollar store goodies doesn't amount to much. But I'm going to tell you that that shoebox may be the gateway that God uses to open a child's heart to Jesus. And so every one of these shoeboxes that's stacked up, they're empty right now, but every single one of them represents a key, not just to a child, but to a family's heart. And one thing about Operation Christmas Child is they are, they are working with local churches to make sure that people are hearing the good news about Jesus. In December, we're going to be taking up our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. All these things help us extend our reach beyond our borders to make advances towards completing the Great Commission. We are not an island to ourselves. We're part of a big, beautiful kingdom, and we serve a wonderful, benevolent king. See, our neighbors and our nations are ready to hear the good news, and it's our job in cooperation with like-minded Christians to make sure they can hear. As we read about this church in Antioch, I find it interesting that the church there seemed to be, seemed to be pretty serious. It wasn't a joke. I mean, this was a real deal. They were Christians, and they were Christians in the middle of a very dark city, but they were Christians who were ready to win the world for Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Contrast that today with our definition of Christian at large. I don't think it's a stretch to say that we live in a community that is filled with quote-unquote Christians. But what's interesting and heartbreaking at the same time is that the majority of those who claim to be Christians are completely apathetic to the things of God. I mean, right? You know your neighbors. You know your coworkers. You know those, oh, I go to church. I'm a Christian. But there's no fruit in their lives whatsoever. What we're witnessing today is the very dangerous difference between real, authentic Christianity that's expressed here in the Scriptures and something that we see today known as cultural Christianity. And it's expressed prevalently in our community and other communities like ours in the Bible Belt. What is cultural Christianity? It's not a good thing. It's generally an affirmation of Christian truth without a surrender to Jesus as Lord. It is faith, or it's built on emotion or experience, 
but lacks true faith. Uh, I, the oldest person I've ever baptized, she was 84 years old. She came to faith as an as a 80-year-old, an octogenarian. And I'll never forget her testimony. She was somebody who'd been part of our church, and I thought, man, she, she loves the Lord. She's a Christian. And when she finally got saved, she said, I was basing my whole faith on an emotional encounter that I had as a child and never once surrendered my life to Jesus. Today I want to surrender my life to Jesus. That 84-year-old woman got saved because her whole life had been built on a, a false premise that, that doing good, that going to church, that those sort of things, that that's what it took to, that's what got you into heaven. That's not what gets you into heaven. That's a works-based gospel that will not, get, will not get you into heaven at all. It'll send you to hell in a heartbeat. You see, this faith that's built on emotion or experience but lacks true faith in the, in the gospel, that's what we see in cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity today, it claims God's promises while ignoring the requirements that are included with them. It talks a lot about God in the general sense, but very little about Jesus as Lord. It uses spiritual language without understanding the principles that undergird that language. Well, God bless you. Ever hear that? Not a clue what that means. It's about performing enough religious activity to gain a sense of well-being without true devotion to Jesus. Well, I'll just go to church on Christmas and Easter and I'll be good. Right? I'll just go on those couple days when I need to or when mom says come on Mother's Day and I'll be good. Pat myself on the back. I'm a good person. Jesus has to smile on me because of my devotion. And it's just not true. You see, those who are steeped in cultural Christianity, they need to do one of two things. One is they need to repent from sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and truly be saved. Truly turn their life, turn from, turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and be saved. They need to do that. Or secondly, if they are truly saved, they need to seek out the Lord, ask him to remove everything from their lives that resembles faith, but that ultimately comes up short. And those of us who are following Jesus, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We understand we're trying to live for him. We study our scriptures. We're part of the church. We do all the things that, that we know we're supposed to do as, as followers of Jesus, but we're trying to grow. We're trying to, we're trying to get it right every single day. We need to be praying for our neighbors who've fallen into the trap of culture Christianity and guard our hearts against falling into the trap ourselves. Every one of us falls in that spectrum somewhere. We need to repent and trust Jesus. We need to turn back to Christ and follow him. Or we need to be praying for our neighbors who've fallen into the trap. Every one of us. Where do you fall on that today? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of the Christians at Antioch. And Lord, we understand that those Christians at Antioch were men and women who were faithful to the Word of God. They were listening to the Holy Spirit. They were eager to see you move and work in their lives. We understand that as they went, they told, told people about Jesus. We understand that as they, as they grew, they were taking advantage of discipleship opportunities Barnabas and Saul would teach and instruct and give them the things that they need to know that they could be faithful and could go and teach those things to others. At the same time, Lord, they understood that they were part of a bigger kingdom. It wasn't just their church. It was so much more than just that. 
And so, Lord, I pray that we would reflect that definition of what it means to be a Christian in our own lives and in our own church. And I pray, Father, that as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to you, God, that you would put away any inkling of cultural Christianity out of our lives and that the faith we have would be true, legitimate, sincere, and it would not be faith in, in some, some idea, but it would be faith in a risen Savior who died on our place for our sins that we might truly be saved. And so, God, maybe even in this room today, there are those who maybe they're writing and basing their whole salvation on an emotional experience when they were in vacation Bible school as a kid. They went to camp, and they, they, they had just a taste of what that was like. Their friend got baptized, and they choose to go get baptized as well. But if they're honest, and they look deep down inside their heart right now, they would see that there's no saving faith there. There's an affirmation of truth, but no true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No true, truly accepting him as Lord. And so, God, in this moment, I pray that you would allow the scales to fall off our eyes and that we would see us as you see us. Indeed, if there's any here today that need to follow Jesus, not an idea, not a principle, not a politician, but follow Jesus Christ as Lord, that today would be a day of salvation for them. God, I pray that if there's any of us here that we've got a neighbor that we're concerned about, we've got a coworker, a loved one that we have a burden for, that we would not lose sight of their needs in our heart and that we would constantly lay them before you looking for the opportunity when we can point them to Jesus. God, maybe there's some here today that truly are saved, but over the course of their life, maybe even during this season of COVID, they've gotten cold, lukewarm in their faith. They come to church, but, but really what drives them day to day is not, it's not Christ. It's other things. They're very distracted. So in these moments as we sing and respond to this word, Christian, would we renew our efforts at discipleship? Renew sincerity in our worship. Renew a zeal for Christ to our neighbors. That you might do a great revival in our lives today. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon. Thank you.